I love this album. Let's do this. On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses, and then there were three. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we finally get into three-man Genesis with And Then There Were Three. going to sort of temper myself with regards to this album and I was going to you know sort of adopt a more distant and analytical tone and everything else but you know what screw it I love this album and I've always loved this album I'm not going to say it's the best but I've always loved it there you go you know it and and I I got into it for dumb reasons, as I want to do. Um, I loved the, you know, I, I again when when I got into Genesis, I I don't remember how much lore I knew or anything else. I didn't. I'm sure that the the meaning of this particular title was obvious to me, but I loved, absolutely love, and to this day love Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. Huh. And so obviously this plays off on that Ten Little Indians um Ten Little Indians poem that's in there. And so when I heard the title, I'm like, I need to have that album. Um I probably knew Follow You, Follow Me, maybe, I don't know. Um, but this was this was one of the first, you know, earlier, if we can use that phrase, Genesis albums that I actively sought out and I was very very pleased with what I got um and and like I said ever since then I've just I've been positively enamored with this album now the funny thing is you know I I I fell in love with it for different reasons maybe than than I have today and I didn't necessarily know all of the the lore and everything surrounding it but who would have thought, who could have possibly imagined the sheer magnificent influence of Bill Bruford's big blue bouncing ball? But these guys do one tour with Bill Bruford, and suddenly they're fucking cowboy crazy like Yes were. Wow. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That is great. I, you know, it, they... they I, I think of that. I didn't, it, it kind of hit me last week. I'm like, holy crap, there's not one, but two cowboy songs, or at least songs about the the the, uh, the, the Wild West. 
And what, where did that come from? They toured with Bill Bruford. Bill Bruford is, you know, he told us they were cowboy crazy, and yes, and he infected Genesis for an album. Hmm. Mm. Now, of course, Genesis did the cowboy thing a little differently, but that's because they're Genesis. So you're well, talking about lyrics mostly. I mean, I don't hear any banjos in here. Right, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's strictly subject matter. I dig it. I, I, I dig that little tangent you got there. I like that a lot. Yeah, I thought that was funny. The other thing that, generally speaking, I want to point out with this is I believe, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, if, if maybe I missed it before or maybe it was a, a time thing, but this is sort of the introduction of the the Yamaha electric piano that becomes so important in in certainly in Duke in Peter Gabriel yeah. 3 you, mm -hmm. you know and, and but this is the first time that I recall hearing it and I think you know it's important that you know this is where that instrument which like I said becomes very very important first shows up I think that's cool yeah, for all of the uh, the production questions that we may or may not have across the span of Genesis, uh, you know, as they they go from a full band to four member to now three member, Tony K has been upping his game throughout, adding different sounds, adding different uh, textures, and I'm I, I totally agree with you that there are parts of this, and I don't think I ever heard about this before. I, I'm a little different when I got into this album. I forced myself to get into this because I felt like it was some sort of duty of mine to to listen to this. And I never really got into it. I, ne I, I never really did. And I, I agreed with you what you were saying, Joe, in our previous episodes, 100%. That to me, you know, when you look at like quality of album, like if I was going to rank the albums, somewhere in the rankings, there would be Wind and Withering followed in, in 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 height or better order of, and then there were three, and then Trick of the Tail, mm -hmm. right? I think in this period, Trick of the Tail is the standout record. And while I, I, it's still my favorite of the of this re, of this time span that we're in. This go around, I've had such a deeper appreciation for. Four, and then there were three. First of all, I remembered the songs that, that I was like, wow, I remember loving this song. I can't believe I'd forgotten about this for so long. Mm. But there was just this feel of like, yeah, you know, not that, not, you know, not that Steve Hackett was necessarily holding them back, but now that he's gone, there's this, again, this natural sort of release that they have. Yeah. And, and like Phil and um, Rutherford are just locked in and they are bringing it from a rhythmic standpoint and Tony is basically in charge of all the melody and it's, it works and the electric piano that comes in and all of that, it, it like hails moments that are about to come in Duke. It's, it's, it's such a fun album to listen to. I could, I wish they would have dialed down the compression a little bit, but you know, nah. it, it's a great, great. <laughs> this album really um, cemented my, uh, pop ballad romantic tendencies as a listener and you know even junior songwriter so um there's something about this that is very intimate as soon as you put it on 
it's almost like you're listening to someone's secrets. And uh, even when they're rocking out and the drums and bass are doing that tight thing, we're still getting a, a lot of this uh, deep introspection in the lyrics and in the, the keyboard tones. So th this takes me to, uh, uh, I guess, memories of 11th grade and uh, just just really fantastic images in the lyrics with, you know, not only Jim Cooley, the cowboy, but uh, Nemo and everything. It's just uh, picturesque for me. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I I definitely agree that the the lyrics are are very on point and very communicative in in this album. You know, they they get their point across. So even if you don't know the lyrics, they get they somehow pass that along because yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I sense throughout listening to this that there there are some powerful emotional moments here and i experienced them even though i'm like damn i wish i knew what he was saying um <laughs> yeah, i was I, youtubing I, the covers and then learning lyrics that i didn't know i knew <laughs> there you go right <laughs> well and and we're we're going to have we're going to have a a less than stellar lyric moment but but we'll get to that perhaps before we get too deep into it ken would you like to regale us with with what else was going on in in 1978. Okay. Thanks for asking, Joe. And then there were three was released March, April 1978, also the year of peak marijuana consumption around the globe. That's right. Yeah. Previous flavor research. So uh, that doesn't seem to really take its toll here. Uh, anyway, so my my question is, what were they listening to in 1977, uh, following Wind in, in Wuthering? Uh, so when in Wuthering would have been in the beginning of 77. So 77, February, Peter Gabriel won. Uh, and just before that, in January, it was uh, Animals. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer Works, Volume 1 was March. Uh, Anthony Phillips, The Geese and the Ghost in March. Brand X, Moroccan Roll in April. Uh, Super Tramp, Even in the Quietest Moments in April. Alan's Parsons Project, I, Robot. That sounds great. It's 1977. I wouldn't want to be like you. Uh, Sticks, July 77. The Grand Illusion sounds very good. Yes, with going for the one in July. How is the uh, Grand Illusion so good? <laughs> that was, uh, uh, that was uh, definitely Grand Illusion, Pieces of Eight, Paradise Theater. Definitely the heyday of Sticks, I think. Yeah. I mean, um, those are... Oof. Those are solid top to bottom. Anyway, yeah. sorry, Ken. Sorry, Ken. Well, a farewell to Kings, September. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Kansas did the point of no return in October. Uh, seconds Out was released in October. Oh. Queen did News of the World. Uh, ELO did Out of the Blue. That's just oh, great. Oh, God, here. Out of the Blue. Are you kidding me? And and you know, it, it, uh, yeah, and then and then we, we get into '78, and everybody smokes a doobie, and they're still making music. Frank Zappa did Zappa in New York. Dixie Dregs did What If, uh, Genesis in April, and then there were three. So um, yeah, my apologies to the bands that I skipped along the way, but but clearly it's a very productive 
uh, year and a great time to be making music. Well, and, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, but but as we discovered, uh, as evidenced by our previous research, did not Tormato come out in 1978? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What month was that? The powerhouse that was Tormato. Got uh, hemispheres in October. Tormato was September. There There you you go. go. Particularly, I think, with Genesis, and particularly with this album, because this album yields, at the time... You know their great, their biggest hit, if you will, mm-hmm. um, at least in America. Um, to take a little view of the landscape of 1978 as well, uh, around you know what was happening in popular music, because this is we're on the precipice of Genesis uh, going into that area. So things like the Cars self-titled album are coming out. Bruce Springsteen is releasing Darkness on the Edge of Town. Mm. Foreigner, Foreigner's Double Vision. Um, there are a lot of very interesting pop or rock things, album-oriented rock, like Saga releases their self-titled album. Um, right next to Dolly Parton and Kenny Loggins releasing, and Sean Cassidy, right? This is some of the things that are dominating... Um, Music, oh, Holland Oates uh, release an album. The Tubes, I want to say, released an album as I was scrolling through here, I saw. So there's a whole bunch of things happening with music. The Grease soundtrack was released. Ooh. So that just kind of gives you like what was happening popular music-wise during this time as uh, Genesis was beginning to, to um, make, you know, move, progress, if you will, that's probably not the right word to use, but um, pound for pound, I think you can make an argument that the most important release of 1978 musically was Van Halen one, because a lot of things changed for rock music after Van Halen. What month was that? That was early in the year. Van Halen, um, they, it was in February, February 10th. Just before this. That's wild. Yeah, same week that Judas Priest's Stained Class was released. So it's interesting, you know, when you think, you know, Ken, I, I mean, I appreciate all of those great uh, production-type sounds of those that era that you talk through. But then when you think of something like Van Halen and... Um, you know, being released, things were things were about to change quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. there's a fan. Yeah, there's a fantastic quote from uh, Rutherford that I caught in my research today, where he describes Yes as dying through this period. I yeah. heard that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was Tormato, so there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 through the miracle of pop music, Genesis survived. Yeah. So. Um, Let's let's get to the particulars and then we can get back into it then. So and then there were three as as Ken pointed out and apparently depending on where you look it's either released in March or April of 1978 produced by David Henschel and Genesis again released on the label Charisma. The band lineup now is what will become classic three-man Genesis. Tony Banks on keyboards, Mike Rutherford on basses and guitars, and Phil Collins on drums, percussion, and vocals. Very easy. Track listing, 
Down and Out, Undertow, Ballad of Big, Snowbound, Burning Rope, Deep in the Motherlode, Many Too Many, Scenes from a Night's Dream, Say It's Alright Joe, The Lady Lies, and Follow You, Follow Me. And then there were three, is the ninth studio album by the English rock band Genesis, was released in March 78 by Charisma Records, and is their first recorded as a trio of singer-drummer Phil Collins, keyboardist Tony Banks, and bassist guitarist Mike Rutherford, following the departure of guitarist Steve Hackett. The album marked a change in the band's sound, mixing elements of their progressive rock roots with shorter material and Collins contributing to more of the group's songwriting. The album reached number three in the UK Albums Chart and number 14 on the US Billboard 200. The lead single, Follow You, Follow Me, became their highest charting at that point, reaching number seven in the UK and number 23 in the US. The album was certified platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America in 1988 for selling one million copies in the U.S. To further promote it, Genesis toured worldwide with their new live guitarist, Daryl Sturmer. The album was remixed in 2007 as part of the Genesis 1976-1982 box set in 5.1 surround sound and a new stereo mix by Nick Davis. Fantastic. I don't know that I've heard the new stereo mix by Nick Davis, but I would be very interested to hear that. Oh, I just assume that's what we were streaming in the streaming apps. Oh, well, I don't stream if I can avoid it. And I happen to own, and then there were three on several different types of media. So <laughs> I, yeah. have, I have had no need. I will say, you know, the, um, the, the cover for, and then there were three, is 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 pretty well lambasted in in everything that you see or read about it um you know apparently it wasn't one of of storm thurgood's better ideas i will say that the the album cover is less horrific in the in the vinyl gatefold than it is on the teeny tiny cd um booklet but it's still not great by any stretch educate of me what is it i've been looking at this for years and it just looks like a bad lightning strike so i i believe the the wikis go into this um they they were trying to to tell a story through i guess this sort of long exposure film so someone drives up in the car gets out lights a cigarette um i think they get something out of the trunk which is the guy you see on the the left with the uh, with the flashlight or the torch, if you're British, and then they drive away again. So, trying to tell a story in what essentially looks like a single photograph doesn't generally work, <laughs> as as you as you can tell. It is interesting though because you know it looks like there are three people on here which does at least seem to track with the with the title of the album but in fact it's it I don't think it's three separate people. I only see two people. Yeah, that's a bad album cover. Yeah, it's not uh it's not Storm's yeah. best work. Yeah. It's kind of the tormato of album covers. Yeah, it's it's weird, but the the yeah. the coloring is better in the, in the bigger thing. I do find it interesting, you know, just 
the the fact that they've gone back to the the lamb type font here, but they have this weird like green slime thing over it. It's just it's there's so much about this that just doesn't make sense. But uh, I just wanted to sort of get that out of the way and, and say, yeah, there it is. And, and you know, whatever. I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time on it. It's not great. Yeah, it's not great. It's bizarre. Hypnosis. You know, hypnosis was, was so good most of the time. It's amazing that, you know, A, this got as... This got printed. <laughs> it's it's bad enough that they, you know, that they put it together. Yeah. But no. What one did said, they pass on? Yeah. No, you know. <laughs> exactly. No one said. Yeah. That that's really not going to work. I mean, I, I. Who knows? It's hypnosis. Can't you know, just give them an extra thousand bucks and they'll light somebody on fire? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know the the. The, the big change here is that we now have Mike Rutherford stepping in and playing guitar. Apparently, you know, according to the research that I did, there was some consideration at some point of bringing in, you know, a session musician or something to, to play guitar. And Mike, Mike apparently said, no, I, th I think I want to do it. I recall reading from his book that he is not particularly overwhelmed with his with his work on on this record i think he described it as he was just good enough to get it done at this point and i would i would argue that he was attempting to i think play as steve hackett would have played as opposed to how mike rutherford would have played is, is how I sort of interpret this. I think it's so tasteful. I like it. He's not overstepping his bounds. No. And, and I, you know, I believe I made this, this comment in the last episode, someone else put in that position could have gone apeshit crazy, you know, mm -hmm. and said, Oh man, I am going to fucking go to town now. But whether it's, it's Mike's general personality or whatever the case may be, he's, He's really extraordinarily understated for someone who is is literally providing fifty percent of the of the instrumentation on an album. Well said. Yeah, it's extremely. He's extremely understated. But this is also their ninth album. Think about where other bands are at their ninth album, and I mean, I I feel like their approach here is pretty pretty mature overall. Tony gets to take care of the melody and he can wank all all he wants but he doesn't really wank as much as you know the old days i think they're all really under control and all really trying to to make the songs breathe a little bit and the vocals are still too low in the mix i think but um and the guitar i mean i don't know if he was overcompensating with compression or if compression just was was magnified during the 2007 remastering I mean that's the only thing. It's just he seems like he's pretty heavy-handed with that on 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 some of the the tracks. While when probably when I was listening to this, you know, when I was getting into it in high school and college, I probably loved it. I thought it was probably awesome. Now I <laughs> now not so much. But yeah, I mean his un, he the the way he's understated for me, he's always be, stayed that way. Yeah. From here on out, he is he's never someone you're like, oh yeah, Mike Rutherford's 
somebody that I would put on a list of guitar players that I would that you know yet he's incredibly tasteful. Right. I mean he's he's no he's no Steve Howe. <laughs> you know. I, I can give you his glory moment having seen the musical box live in uh I, I've, I should have brought this up in our special concert series, uh, but in Can Utility and the Coastliners, there's that one bass part with the pick. Yeah, I don't know if you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is so brilliant. Just listening on the album and having seen a live rendition of it, I'm like, I would have loved to have seen Rutherford in his <laughs> element playing his line. Well, it, um, it, it, it's and they had the roadie come out and actually switch him from guitar to bass to get there. Cool. It was great. I, you know, it's funny you bring that up, Ken, because that's the other part of this, right? You know, we have been sort of, you know, even as a, even as a bass player, while I think, you know, that's where, where Mike had been honing his skills at this point. And there have been times in the previous albums where we pointed out, you know, Mike sort of, of bringing it on, on the bass line. So we know he can do that. We know presumably that's where he was comfortable at this point. But he even dials that back a little bit here. You know, there there are a couple of moments where, you know, he'll he'll whip out, you know, just some some sick baseline, but for the most part, when when I say Mike Rutherford is understated, I mean Mike Rutherford everything he does. Yeah. And 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 I think he and Paul, you're right. I think he's going to continue to sort of be that way. Um, from here on out. And, and I think Phil follows a similar trajectory. I don't think Phil is nearly as, as busy or as intricate here on this album. And we've talked previously about, you know, when you get into the, the heyday in the, the late 80s and, and early 90s, you know, the, the interesting part that Phil brings is, is again, in, in a way understated. So, you know, that just seems to be the way that they're progressing as a group with, with the exception of Tony, but who cares, you know? Even Tony dialed it down. If you think of the bombastic lamb lies down kind of stuff, it's nice a trajectory from there yeah. through a couple albums to get yeah. to here. And, and they, you know, they, it's the thing that's continued and is getting better is that since now the drummer is the lead vocalist, you know, when it's time for him to sing, everybody's getting the fuck out of his way. Um, they're not trying to play all kinds of stuff or they're not, you know, when they come up with really intricate, cool parts, you know, there isn't somebody else going, cool, I'm going to sing over this now. They're, they're, they're like, no, we're not going to sing over. It. We're just going to play this part. We'll sing later. Down and out. Man. <sighs> I, my, my notes here <laughs> start out that the, the drum sound is weird. And but the music is is very dense. I hadn't realized, you know, there there's a lot to this when you talk earlier, Paul, about the lyrics that I don't know that I had really paid a lot of attention. I knew maybe a lot of the words, but I hadn't really processed what it was all about. So the fact that you know this is sort of in the vein of a of a have a cigar song where the 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 verse is the record label and the chorus is the artist. And there's this sort of give and take about, you know, the, the different perspectives between the two of them. You know, I, I, I just find that to be interesting. And, and the other thing I've got here is that here again, these, these bass lines are very, very, 
you know, basic, for lack of a better phrase. But I just, I, I think this song fucking rocks. And Ken, I absolutely loved the version you you shared us today from from the oh, yeah. farm. That was they're German. There are they? Yeah. Oh, they. That was <laughs> you, you know it. It was so so just energized um, hearing mm-hmm. that played live. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Search, search for Down and Out the Farm on YouTube. Uh, recorded in 2009, but released several years later. It was fantastic stuff. When the guitar comes in, I'm I'm instantly. I mean, this guitar riff is it. You know, a similar riff appears two albums later, three albums later. There are, you know, this is a very typical, if, if there is such a thing at this point in time, Mike Rutherford sort of guitar thing with this, you know, octave melody and, you know, kind of repetitiveness. <laughs> but the thing that always strikes me about this song is, I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard it. And still, 45 seconds in, I'm not ready for this song to just, like, go crazy. <laughs> it's like I'm always surprised that they that they just turn this into this like kind of mean rhythmic kind of. Sh- it's, um, and, it's pretty yeah. cool. And the reason I sent around that German cover was that in the bootlegs, Genesis ruins this. They're on their high and mighty war horse kind of vibe where the power of the song carries it instead of the groove. And what really makes this for me is the groove. Mm. So I, I like the original recording. I like the covers. I don't like what they were doing with it live, which is probably why it didn't survive in their set because it went a little crazy. And and Phil is doing the words too fast. But when you have it like a little slow, a little reserved, he can fit in all those words and you kind of get what's going on. And even I'm looking at this. And um, I'm reading the lyrics um, w- when he says, there's people out there who could take your place. That, that for the last mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years, has been ringing in my head. That's an amazing line. But I never s- understood a more commercial view of Fresher Face. And like, there are just so many words packed into this. And th- I like to hear them rather than just rock through it. He does introduce this in the live recordings as you know um there are people that do the work and there are people that make all the money and this is a song you know to mock the people who just try to pull the levers and make all the money and don't do any of the work uh and he also describes it in another version as you know one guy the ceo firing another guy uh but yeah it it truly is the story of one guy firing another guy (laughs) but awesome they, they do it so well it's it's theater and it's a groove it's 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 a fantastic song which uh moves us into undertow you know paul i think this is maybe one of the the songs perhaps that you were referring to when you're talking about maybe you don't necessarily know what the the words are exactly but the the emotion that is sort of communicated through through this song and you know everything the the chorus and everything i mean it just it it almost lifts you out of your seat right yeah this is this is definitely the first time i put this on to prepare for the podcast and they kicked into the um actually it was in you know the you know if this was the last night of your life my friend i was oh oh, oh, yeah right 
like I, my 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 senses started to tingle because I was like, oh wait a second, I remember this. And then as my mind was catching up, you know, they hit into the chorus, and it's incredibly uplifting for me. And um, you know, to you know, this this is a, a it's 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 I, it's very powerful. And I, tonight is the first night of my life I've actually looked to see what the lyrics actually were. Mm-hmm. I just kind of sing along and make them up as I go. Um, but uh, yeah, this and I love compression and all. I love the flowing, clean guitar track through the chorus of this, and um, and then out of the chorus, you get the nice little what I'm going to just call like a Duke interlude that gets you back. To yes, the, yes, yes. I right. It. I it's very it. Duke. It's it, very... It, it, it is. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's kind of the beauty of of this album because it 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 does give you these sort of glimpses of where we're going to be. Um. Yeah, it's it's funny. I always I always listen to this song, and um, you know, I, I I always sort of struggled with with the chorus because it does seem to present two sides of the coin, and and I wasn't quite sure of you know how that fit together. But but yeah, it's it's you know it's 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 framed out as you know if this were the last day of your life, my friend. And then it's like, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to, are you going to maximize that time? Are you going to embrace what you have? Or are you going to sit there and whine like a little bitch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is clearly um, a heartbroken human finding love again, and it it, it is such a a a, a poem. <sighs> this, this is. In the arc of Phil's creativity, and or, or, um, well, they're, they're they're all writing together at this point. But uh, the words are just as relevant as the music. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Let yeah, me great. let me live again. Let life come find me wanting. Um, spring must strike again against the shield of winter. Let me feel once more the arms of love surround me, telling me the dangers past. I need not I fear need not the fear icy the blast, icy again. blast again. again. God, yes. that is awesome. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Know, and and it's not like it's not like Genesis has a long history of of expressing you know these emotional type yeah. sentiments, but there it is. And, and I want to say this is all Tony Banks, and I I think he said something about he was really like opening up himself here, and these, um, yeah, it's amazing. Oh, it is all Banks. It's one hundred percent Banks. God, this is so awesome. And I, I take back everything bad I ever said about Tony. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I, I have a note here that I do love the uh, the drum parts and the bridge of this. I just, I you know that that sort of lead in that that whole that whole lead into the chorus thing. It's it. I think it's so perfectly set up the way they they get you there. Yeah. I wonder if they were thinking in the mix that they were like, man, I wish we could, I wish we had some way of like getting a lot of reverb to end really quickly on those, uh, on those Tom hits before the chorus. <laughs> I wonder we, how could we do that? <laughs> and in two years- they, they really become sort of like the quintessential Phil Collins, you know, Phil's yeah. no pun intended. Yeah. So, you know, this, th- I think, 
this was clearly one of the songs that that pushed my buttons very early on um and i just i loved it i remember when i got you know recently when i got into the whole vinyl kick and i and i got this on vinyl and, and i put it on and i don't know that i had listened to it in a while and it was just it was so refreshing to suddenly hear all these songs you know coming out of my stereo that way it was absolutely beautiful but this is genesis which means we have to have saga songs and that takes us to ballad of big which is the the first of our our bill bruford cowboy connections here um i the you know i i find this i find this track to be very entertaining i always have um I absolutely love what I, for lack of, of the proper language, will call the um, the little um, the guitar overdubs, like in the middle of the verses that he has. Okay. I, you know, it just it, it just it kind of moves everything along. You know, there's there's a kind of a great feel about all of this. So I, I've always really enjoyed it. But again, I never, while I knew most of the words and I knew certainly the story, um, you know, and it's not their fault because this was recorded in 1978 and here we are talking in, in 2019. But I find, you know, here again, once I looked at these lyrics and I was like, oh, they're putting me in a very awkward position. <laughs> when, when I have to read... Um, let me get this. Let me get this right. Um, a whooping and a hollering and flashing their knives. Big and his men were jumped by an all-star Indian tribe. I never knew those lyrics until tonight, cramming for this. Right, and, and I, I, I caught it because. Uh, yeah, there was some dude just doing his karaoke versions online. And when he sang the Indian part, I was like, no way. No way. I can't believe that. Right. Uh, I mean, I, because when he sings that Indian tribe and he, he's got that sort of, you know, high sustained note and it just kind of drives you right into the rest of it. And you're like, oh, that's cool. But you never really knew what that. Uh, what he said. Right. Because. Yeah. and. If you had asked me without showing me the lyrics what that was and given me 50 cho chances, I never would have arrived at yeah, All-Star yeah, yeah. Indian Tribe. Never in a million years. And suddenly I, I can't I, – I find my enjoyment of this song diminished greatly <laughs> because, <clears throat> A, well, it's, it's you know somewhat offensive, and B, it's, it's really a stupid lyric. It's, it's offensive because he, quote, he says Indian? I think it's the all-star Indian tribe that, that really cements it. Now, again, you know, this was, this was written in 78. There, there was a different yeah. sort of, I mean, it was within our lifetime that the concept of, of native American became the proper terminology. Right. 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 So, yeah. you know, I, 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 I John it, Wayne was big. Cowboy movies were all the rage. It was part of the culture. And, and like I said, in, in 1978, I'm sure this was no big deal. In 2019, I find myself a little uncomfortable with it. It's, it's a little weird. Um, and and well, let's just give credit to Phil, because I think he just made up, like, the right delivery. Like, 
<laughs> if he didn't like a word, he just mumbled it. <laughs> <laughs> he made the best of this. Yeah, I yeah. Uh boy. I feel like we should take a palaver toll. I mean like <laughs> Yeah, I'm just gonna let it I'm just gonna let it go. Right. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, they were talking about a bunch of uh all-star baseball players from Cleveland. Um, sure. It, and it could I mean, very well be. I, I just, th- to me, this song is like, is like um, the battle of Epping Forest's little brother. Um, <laughs> I think it tries to be goofy. It goes the, down a lot easier than Epping Forest. The, the changes, uh, it, it certainly does. I totally agree with you. But it's just kind of like the different rhythm parts, the different, the different, uh, the the somewhat awkward move into the dun, 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 to the rest of the song, just doesn't you know never really really brought it home for me on this one. I just I just kind of laughed at, at and just moved along. The melodies are just so amazing. Must be mad, must be mad. I mean, just some of this stuff is just so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, so I'd... powerful. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed it, and I, I still enjoy it. I don't want to overemphasize the, uh, you know, the negative aspect because I, I do, you know, I, yeah. I, I, like I said, I love this album, sort of top to bottom. I, I, I really, really enjoy it, and I, you know, I, I find myself sort of rocking out to this song, um, as as I listen to it. Yeah. All right. So, well, that I, was all three. All three wrote that song, so they were probably just yucking it up. Having a good good old time. Yeah, it almost kind of feels like they're still trying to be the quirky, you know, let's we need a quirky song, guys. I mean, they're building their way to illegal alien. I mean, how else do you get there? <laughs> right. right. Yeah, ab- right. absolutely. <laughs> you gotta be a little bit inappropriate before you can make the big leap. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta put your toe in that water and see how it feels first. <laughs> so moving from uh from Jim Cooley into Snowbound. Now gorgeous yeah it is gorgeous it's a weird kind of lyric but i find i really don't care again i think i think the that musically it's i i find this to be so beautiful and so moving that i you know i've i've always sort of understood there was logical issues maybe with with the lyric and i just choose to ignore that yeah i never did figure this one out kind of stream through some of the comments and i don't even know i don't care it's, it's too a, beautiful yeah it's 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 a for me it's a little awkward it's a great it's a terrific hook the chorus really has a great hook and uh, this weekend you know when i was playing golf for the first time uh in the year and uh, as often is the case you have one or two holes where the the wheels just completely fall off and you get the, um, you have to, you're, you have to take it that uh, you get, basically you score an eight and you know, when you put an eight down on the scorecard, you call it a snowman. Mm-hmm. And, um, so my first eight of the, uh, of the, of the, of the season, I'm walking off the green and I'm walking to the cart and I'm, I'm singing to myself, Hey, there's a snowman. <laughs> I'd like to point out that my enjoyment of golf uh, increased dramatically when I stopped keeping score, but that's just sure. 
no doubt. Well, hey, this have is... you been to Have you been to Top Golf? Not to go off off topic. I, I have been There's... to Top Golf. Yes, I I went for the first time this weekend. It's great. It's expensive as shit, but it is fun. Hmm. It, it is expensive, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's fun. I actually took my kids there once. Um, yeah. This episode of Progressive Palaver is sponsored in part by Top Golf. <laughs> we could be so lucky. I, I have down here, you know, the the end of the chorus. They say a snow year is a good year, filled with the love of all that lies so deep. It's a dumb lyric, but I love it. Ah, oh, because that melody works so well, right? Yeah, I mean, Tony is in such a peaceful zone, but this is actually, oh, this is a mic tune. There are three yeah, mic tunes on this album, and this is the first solo mic tune. So what's, um, what's the third one? Because it's, it's, uh, it's Snowbound, Deep in the Motherlode, and the, the Lady Lot. Okay. Sorry, uh, Say It's All Right Show. I mean, God, they're all kind of sleepers. Well, Deep in the Motherlode's obvious. Yeah, Rutherford's on fire. The orchestral swell that Tony lends to the uh, the bridge into the chorus is just so compelling. Yeah. Now we're talking about Tony, and we're about to head into what is likely, at least in my opinion, the highlight of this record. Sort of right smack in the middle, burning rope, freaking. Mm. I, I think this song slays. I absolutely now, love it. it. I think this starts with a musical onomatopoeia or a metaphor of some sort. Like, are you guys getting that? The the ascending and descending uh, intro to this is kind of like yeah. ropish. Uh-huh. I can see yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, is, is, it, is it safe to say this is the proggiest song on the album? Hmm. I mean, I it's, just, I, 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 I think it's probably safe to say that I, it's I, the longest. I don't think you're going to get any pushback from anyone. I mean, it's it's the longest, but it's just the way it's constructed, and 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 Tony's bringing in all these 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 different sort of structures and and everything else, and and they kind of you know it it goes different places. I I just oh I love it. Hmm. Yeah, and that that intro, I, I just I. You know, I, I think I think there's great balance instrumentally here. You know, and, and again, I think this is a reflection of you know th this balance seems to be reflected from here on out. There's there's something about this three man configuration and the way that either they wrote or recorded music that, you know, they like I Paul, I guess it was you said they, they just sort of they out of each other's way and and they all have enough room to operate and it's it's i think it's a beautiful beautiful thing and like this is you know i think this is is a is a song where you know mike decides to really dial up the baseline as well and you know i i think this is certainly a song that is very dukish as well mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in his book, Rutherford says that the solo in this is the best on the album, and I do not disagree with him at all. Ah. Um, I, I find I really, really enjoy that. 
the, the, the solo. But what I find even more compelling is Tony's sort of interlude before that solo. I think the, the way that, that Tony kind of comes in and out there and the way he finally builds it up into that solo just freaking slays me, man. Mm. I love it. It's amazing. They, they surprised me with the uh, weird, quirky ending, which made me think back to Ken Utility and the Coastliners again. Where they're just like, eh, we want to change up the mood at the very end. Hmm. I always kind of feel like the guitar solo is, is a little bit more like, like you said. It's a little bit of a homage to Steve Hackett. Steve Hackett always had that Every once in a while, he sounded like he was playing a really stiff, boxy sort of riff. That's that's what I remember from this uh, from from this tune. Um, I think it's I think it's definitely the most proggy song. When you think about, it's very intricate. Yeah, like there's so much going on, but but they don't really make a big deal out of it. It's not like they say, "Hey, we're going to spend you know three minutes working on this one thing." They just kind of float it right by you. And you're right, the little ending, Ken. Almost uh, not quite beer commercial-ish, but, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's tricky like that. You know, it's, it's surprising. <laughs> it's pretty cool. What was the original beer commercial? Was that Wondrous Stories? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that little. <laughs> that was so funny. So yeah, I, uh, I I find I find Burning Rope to be just absolutely sublime. And and the funny thing is, as much as I'm gushing about it right now, it kind of took me a while to get there on this. You know, I was it, it's so easy to be taken by some of these other songs that are around it. Um, it, it this is true. You know, it 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 took me some time and 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 really sort of paying attention to go. Wait a second, this is great. You know and, and I don't know. I just think it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say it, Joe, because I agree with everything you said about it. I, I was a little surprised to hear you say at the front that that this was, you know, your your best track or favorite track or most your strongest track on the album. I, I don't know that I would have pointed to this one as as that. Uh, maybe because I'm just a, a sucker for some of the other mechanisms that are happening in some of these other tunes here. But but yeah, it's. It's pretty sweet. Deep in the mother load. Well, I am a sucker for the shuffle. I'll just go on record saying that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Is that my magic 12 eight I'm always looking for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and you know, Joe, this it's very fitting. You just mentioned um the stark reference to to Marillion and the middle section of deep in the motherload i'm pretty sure the whole most of the second side of misplaced childhood was inspired by deep in the motherload and certainly the the whole middle section of brave uh it almost like they lifted it right out of this song and uh and and plopped it into their own work uh i to me i i mean uh, I may be overcome by the by by the uh, mechanisms of 
the shuffle and the uh, that just that beautiful feel. But uh, this song it just rocks my world every time I hear it. I think it's. I, I don't have anything nearly as eloquent to say. I, I do think it's funny that like the first line in the song references a fat man, which just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not characteristic for them. Exactly, it's like where did this come from? <laughs> it doesn't. The first line is nothing to do with the rest of the song, but it, it, I love it. Um, this this is is one of my theme songs. It's one of my life theme songs. Uh, it, 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 it's amazing. It, it, I, I, I was able to find a 1978 live and a 1980 live. And I am now a Daryl Sturmer fan for the first time in a long time. Wow. Really? I just, okay. Uh, and, and I, the bass is always buried in the studio productions in my mind as a, as a, you know, an often frequent bass player. I, I just, you know, can never get enough bass. So pardon me, but I love the bootlegs where you can actually hear Daryl. And I just, I just love, love, love when Mike and Daryl find that chemistry and just stick to it. It's, it's a little bit, you know, like reggae, it's a little bit orchestrated. It's, it's just a lot of teamwork. It's beautiful. And they nail it in this one. And, um, melodically in terms of the pace and just the optimism of the lyrics. It's fucking amazing. Yeah. This song has been with me ever since 11th grade, just, just pounding away inside of me somewhere. Yeah, I, lo I love the optimism of the lyrics. And I think, it, I think it's a great accompaniment to um, Undertow um, in, a, in a different way. But it, to me, I get the same sort of feel um, after listening to it. One one of my favorite parts after that middle section, it kind of breaks down and it's just the the keyboard going do 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 do, and it's it you know at this point in time I'm already just like beside myself in glee, and it's just like you just like it all of a sudden Tony Banks just almost like he just looks over his shoulder and everybody says okay. Now we're going to really lay into it. And he gets like this big. And it's like the windows of my car are melting. I love it. With all this glory, the lyrics actually take us to a sobering moment. Uh, he says, oh, well, if you knew then what you know today. Yes, you'd be back where you started, a happier man, and leave all the glory to those who have remained. Right, right. Well, and it's it's funny you talk about that because with the with the the sort of um, subject matter here, I, one of the very first notes I made on this as I was starting to to think about this album for this this exercise is it's like I, I for some reason I couldn't get the idea out of, out of my head that this is like the prequel to driving the last spike, which no one had any idea, you know, and, and it's funny that I would choose driving the last spike as sort of the, the, the source material. And this would be the prequel as opposed to the opposite um, arrangement. But, but yeah, you know, it just, I, I thought that was. Huh. I like that Joe. See, it always this always happens. This always happens. I listen to a record for like weeks, getting ready for for tonight, 
And I think, you know, I get to, I get to tonight and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to, we're going to do it tonight and I'm going to move on. And then I'm sitting here now going, I can't wait to listen to this album tomorrow on the way to work. <laughs> oh, guilty is charged. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't think I will. Cause I've, I've listened to this album a lot in the last week. Cause we were supposed to record this, you know, last week. And yeah. in the, in the intervening week, I've listened to this a crazy number of times. I, uh, I may listen to the Grease soundtrack tomorrow. Hey, there you go. <laughs> wrong with that. I heard hopelessly devoted to you uh, on the radio this weekend. And I almost cried. Oh. It was so good. My goodness. Olivia Newton, John, what a, what an epic voice. Mm-hmm. Speaking of epic, many too many. Hmm. Yeah, Tony is not happy with his lady. Something happened there, man. <laughs> later on, Phil takes the cake with these kind of lyrics, but it's all Tony. Um, he's got two on this. Yeah, it's right? it's interesting, right? But but even even if Tony's not happy with his ladies, I do find this song to be just very very beautiful. And and oh. and what I have down here is a strong emotional push. As, as my note. So again, you know, they're, they're, he's very clearly conveying his, his sort of emotional state with this. And I, I respect that. And, and I think it's that sort of emotional connection that I have through the vast majority of this album. I love it. Mm. Yeah. It's it's I think it's less refined than some of the stuff that comes up on Duke. Um, uh, it's but it's it just there's a a little bit of I don't know it feels very linear like there's it's just like nice linear feel to it. I don't know. I I can honestly say this I've never delved deep into the song. I just kind of sit there and let it let it wash over me and like the the big chorus really reminds me of like late, late day Marillion, you know, like stuff, stuff that maybe is even like from fear and things like that. Um, I just can hear, I can hear Hogarth singing this. Oh, Weird. I bet Hogarth singing this would be freaking, he'd slay it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny to hear, I'm sure you guys have heard Tony talk about this and having to sort of, you know, convince Phil that he could sing the word mama, right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, especially given what's going to happen, you know, <laughs> five years from now or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny that Tony would write that lyric and that he would have to convince Phil to sing that lyric. But Phil ultimately delivers it so convincingly. Um, you know, I... I I feel the anguish that's being communicated. And so I absolutely love it. And we couldn't have a Genesis album without a little whimsy, could we? Now, I know we talked about Ballad of Big being a little whimsical, but boy, Scenes from a Night's Dream. Now, it's it's better than All in a Mouse's Night or whatever the hell that song was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, all I could think of was... You know, they're, they're talking about Nemo and his fantastic dreams. And, and of course, you know, in, in the modern lens, you have to sort of get the little orange fish out of your head, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> which is which is somewhat problematic. 
Um, but they, they ascribe all of this to, to poor little Nemo eating lots of food before bedtime. I would argue that Nemo, before he went to bed, was listening to the early Genesis catalog. And... <laughs> <laughs> and it created all these fanciful visions in his head. Uh, I just love the intro. Gorgeous. Yeah, that is good. You know, and, and this is this is Genesis whimsy that I can happily accept and deal with. You know, it's it, it it's goofy, but it's not over the top, you know, goofy. It's not it's not robbery, assault, and battery goofy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> they reprise that beginning riff at the end, but they like splice in the evening news. It's like dun 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 I don't know what they were going for there, but I love it. Uh, and uh, yeah, at one time this was my favorite song on the album, just because really? whatever. I was 17 wow. and this was goofy and it worked for me. And <laughs> that is shocking to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say about that, but you know, I, hey. I like it when Genesis can be goofy without being offensive. It's just a nice combination. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, they certainly do that here. Um, and the, there is very, some very cool musical stuff going on here, but it, for me, I'm just not buying it. Um, you know, similar to Assault and Battery, this is definitely a skippable song for me. Ah, oh, way better than Assault yeah. and Battery. Yeah, I just uh, it, it might be. It it very well may be, but but for me, I, I'm going to categorize those two as the as you know in the same bucket. I'm just not buying it. That's all. I, I'm ambivalent about the song. Like I said, I it, intellectually I want to be annoyed, but it's not it's not bad enough to actually annoy me. Now, have you guys looked at the the wiki explanation associated with Say It's All Right, Joe? Humor me. I have not. All right. So the, the wikis says that this is a torch song. And they, they, they start talking about torch songs. And if you, if you go and, and you actually look up torch song, it's, you know, it's, it's usually a song about unrequited love or feelings that one person has that the other person isn't even aware of. The, the wikis in this particular um, instance describe it as, you know, sort of a Genesis attempting to do up a, a Dean Martin type thing. But when I read the, when I read Torch Song, I immediately went to Clutching at Straws and Torch hmm. Song. That's right. Which, you know, and, and there's, there are some similarities here, certainly in, in terms of, of song structure. Um, this, lyrically, this obviously is nowhere near as, as raw and, and intimate as Fish is in his Torch Song. I think both of these sort of speak to the idea of, of what I would call the, the classic torch song as it's defined, um, but they do it in a wonderfully obtuse and proggy way, and dare I say, a, a very self-centered way. You know, it, it's all about, you know, from the point of view of the singer, it's all about, you know, 
my my feelings, my pain, my whatever, right? Certainly that that's the way um, Fish presents his. Mm. Um, and, and I think there's a little bit here. But of course, I, I also find it weird when you go into the chorus here and they're, the, the chorus, I, I honestly don't get lyrically what the chorus has to do with the rest of this song. But, you know, I just, I, I, I do find it interesting. I don't necessarily get it all the way, but I, you know, it's another example of on on this album, the fact that they they really are not constrained by classic or typical song structures. They're mm -hmm. Genesis, damn it, and they're going to put together whatever bits in whatever way they want to, and I, it works. You know, if you don't pay too much attention and start having to deal with potential logical fallacies. Um, mm. So I, I, that was that was sort of my my research and observation on Say It's All Right, Joe. I don't know. I think, I think the chorus is just so damn good. It just makes the whole thing good. It, it is good. But, I mean, do the lyrics make any sense? Well, you know, it does have that, okay, you said Dean Martin, but, you know, it's a guy in a bar... You know, say it's all right, Joe. Maybe the bartender's Joe. I need another drink, whatever. I think so. And yeah. then, then you know, the clock on the wall says it's time to leave. You know, I get that vibe. Mm -hmm. um, but the this awesome chorus, there were kings who were laughing in the rain, and they told me I'd come here to lead the parade. So rhythmic. It's just, it, it, it's just, I so damn good. Well, it is good. And, and like I said, I, I don't necessarily get those lyrics. And the, the chorus, as beautiful as it is, they only do it twice. And I, I find, actually, the lyrics in the second chorus, which close out the song, are much more compelling. So if you look at, if you look at those, mm. if there's a fire, it's asleep in my bed. I must leave it to burn until it burns itself out. Catch as you can, I'm not staying here long. I'll be coming back early or never at all. Shine on. And that right there is the bridge to Fish's torch song, right? This is nice. this is the self-absorbed um, you know, whatever, who is is saying, look, whatever I've got, I'm just going to push it down and let it, you know, do its thing over there. And either I'll be here, you know, it's, it, 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 while the rest of it doesn't make any sense, it's that one, that one chorus. And, and, you know, Ken, to your point, the chorus is absolutely moving and, and beautiful, but it, it's the lyrical content of that chorus that builds this bridge for me, which I find just, you know, I'm, it's, it's relatively new that I figured this out. So I'm still trying to piece it all together, but I'm just fascinated. I love the way Phil says shine on. Yeah. And the, way the music carries on there. Mm -hmm. he, he gets a little more guttural in his throat and does the shine on lyric. Ugh. You know, and, great I, feeling. and I, that's another good point, Ken, because this is what the third album that Phil's been singing like full time. And he's been out on tour a couple of times. He's getting much better at this. And he's got, you know, I think more range, more tools than the toolbox, right? So he can, mm -hmm. he can do things like that that maybe we wouldn't have heard before. It's very cool. For four minutes and 21, I, I think this rivals Burning Rope as, as the proggiest song. 
on the album, maybe, Joe. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love your comments and a lot of great things going on here. This song, personally, leaves me about as confused musically as the album cover does artistically. <laughs> um, that's all I'll say to it. Which brings us into The Lady Lies. This, yeah, somebody's got an axe to grind. Boy, no kidding, right? This is <laughs> this is this is some dark uh, some dark material here. I, I will say that line. He thinks he is a warrior, so he picks up his sword and goes. That that has sat with me for years, and it just applies so well. So, like, <laughs> and, and and it's some some pretty wonderful double entendre too. The, How so? Well. So <laughs> let's let's go to um, my favorite line in this song. So he went inside there to take on what he found, but he had never escaped them for who can escape what he desires, right? This whole idea is he's being, you know, tempted, led into some trap by, by this woman who is either a woman or a devil. You jumped right to the end. Yeah. So... Okay. You know, when when you're talking about a man who's obsessed with his desire for a woman and he picks up his sword and goes, well, it doesn't seem to be a big leap to me. <laughs> that, oh, okay. okay. What, his, gotcha, gotcha. what his sword right. actually is. Okay. All right. Th yeah. Sorry. I'm a little <laughs> slow tonight. Okay. <laughs> Which, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know. It, it's interesting because. Peter Gabriel was usually very, very obvious with his double with these kinds of yeah, right, yeah, you know, right. Was, How could I be so blind? I mean, it, uh, it, yeah, it, it was. Should, yeah. Peter almost operated in single entendres all the time. <laughs> 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 you know, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I could see where because this is a Tony track, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I could see where Tony might not be as comfortable being quite as upfront. I don't think. Many people are as are as comfortable being quite as upfront as Peter is. <laughs> um, even to this day, Peter doesn't really have a problem with with being upfront. So yeah, just I I find it to be be interesting. But again, I, I there's there I think there's a lot to like in this song. It it, it does sort of reek of of toniness, which is not a bad thing. But it, it does have a certain characteristic to it. It, it makes me question how much of Pete was Tony. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, you know, this kind of storified mythology you'd think would be exclusively Peter, but now we're seeing maybe some of that was also Tony. Yeah, either that or, you know, maybe Peter had an influence on Tony in his writing. I, I don't know. Because obviously, yeah. in the beginning, those you know those two were were one pair, and and Mike and Anthony were the other pair. So you know mm -hmm. who knows. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, it is it is interesting. You know, again, we go back to the the Venn diagram metaphor with with Genesis, and it, it can be difficult to say that when one person left, they took all that they brought to the table because you see some of these these overlap areas that seem to continue in their absence it's it's very strange and, and maybe that's why three-man genesis was able to be as successful as they were you know they had assimilated enough of the rest of of the other guys while 
having that room to operate. I don't know. Just I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. I I agree with that, and I think you know these were five really incredibly talented guys, and I mean when you think about Phil Collins, you think about the level of of drumming. He is such an incredible drummer, and he's shown us all of that in all of these records. And then one day he decides, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be the lead vocalist. That's fine. And I realize it wasn't that nonchalant. But all of a sudden, he, you you have this insight to how incredibly talented he is. You know, mm. and, and we take for granted, I think I do, that you see a band and you just accept that, oh, that's the guitar player. That's what he does. He plays guitar. And, and you know, even you take an example like Ty Tabor. Like, he has a couple solo albums where he plays every instrument, drums, bass, every, everything he's doing. <laughs> there are so many musicians who can play so many different instruments. They can sing. And, you know, we've got a whole band full of them here. And one, one person leaves and you, there's this collaborative thing that was happening that goes away. But there's still this immense amount of creative talent and creative force and new collaboration starts. And then, you know, Phil Collins, even amongst these five, is just a talent to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And he's slowly asserting himself. And, you know, I, I think, you know, to me, that just kind of accompanies what you were you were saying, Joe, that, you know, guy leaves, it's okay, because they're picking up, they, they were already there. It wasn't like they had to pick up any slack because they were already so integral into what was happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I think Phil stepping out from the drum kit and, and having a different perspective, perhaps, um, plus, you know, his, his experiences, because obviously at this point, Phil was not was not recognized as a songwriter. This is this is where, you know, again, three albums into his tenure as the lead singer, now he's starting to sort of do that more. And it's it's kind of amazing when you think about other bands that have had, you know, a a, a predominant songwriter or two, and some other member of the band, you know, decides that that they want to be a songwriter. And even shit, even Steve Hackett, right? Steve Hackett complained that he was having a difficult time, even in four-man Genesis, getting his stuff on yeah. the records. And and so to have someone go from, you know, not writing extensively to becoming, as, as Tony himself described it, by the time they get to Duke, you know, Phil is now an equally capable songwriter with the other two who have been mm-hmm. doing it for years at this point. Yeah. It's it's amazing that he was able to make up that much ground that quickly and, you know, the shit just goes wild at that point. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I know, I guess we'll get to this next time, but I think when they went in to record Duke, he had already written Face Value. Face Value? Yeah. yeah. So, goodness gracious, right? Can I... I mean, I'll, I'll probably do it again next episode when we talk about Duke. But since you brought it up, face value right now, I'm going to get myself yeah. into trouble with with certain people. Uh, and and I'm me. and I just I just listened to face value last week. Hmm. I've never liked that album. I don't think oh, it's wow. very good. 
Mm. Now I have to go see what songs are on face value. I want to say I was listening to this too, but maybe I was listening to another one. I mean, I'll, I'll give it another go, but I just, I, I, that's my initial thought. Oh, I wasn't listening to face value. Sorry. I love Hello, I Must Be Going. That's a different story. Any other thoughts on The Lady Lies? I know we kind of got off track here. No, I don't have any other thoughts on that. I think that there is a uh, a need to at least dabble a little bit in the solo material of... of um, I mean, doesn't it make a lot of sense right here to take on a, sort of a detour and, and examine Peter Gabriel's solo career? At least through his first four albums. <laughs> Doesn't it? How many hours do we have? Yeah, no kidding. I mean, not tonight. I'm just saying. Doesn't it make sense? You know, dude, in the air tonight was on, was on face value. Some you were talking about the the drumming dexterity and talent of Phil Collins. Usbla is recorded perfectly in a couple mm. spots in this album. Yeah. This is a wonderful Uspla album. The middle, yes, and the middle of the Lady Lies, the, uh, the keyboard solo. I I debate with myself as to whether uh, he's utilizing the China Boy symbol in that, right. or if it's just yeah. the just a smaller symbol. Mm. It mm. doesn't quite have the same attack as a China Boy, but it seems like it's a China Boyish type sound. I I, I thought the exact same thing, Paul. One hundred percent. He would have it on the other side of the kit, though, because he's a lefty. That's right. right. He would be going like sideways that way. Yeah. <laughs> so the the question of Peter Gabriel, um, if I wasn't so hot and bothered to get to Duke, I would consider it. But I think, mm. I, yeah, that's okay. I, I'm I, doing it on my own anyway. So, oh, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, plus, I found he's on Spotify. I was like, what? And he has all these German remixes. I've never so heard the like, German remixes. So, I want oh, to hear it's that. really strange. Really? Like, Intruder is a little, a little creepy enough as it is. Try it in German. Oh, uh -oh. I can't even imagine. Hmm. Cool. And so they, they close out the album with Follow You, Follow Me. It, it would be so easy just to sort of dismiss this as the, you know, the light pop song that, you know, was their their most recent hit single. Um, and, and a, you know, I think it's, talk about understated. This song is like the poster child for understated in terms of, mm. of songwriting. Mm -hmm. And... You know, Rutherford talks about, uh, it's quite interesting. He talks about if this song was not supposed to be this. Um, they were so, they, mm. The original plan apparently was to use this guitar riff as a bit in something else. And eventually it, it sort of came in, into being what it is. Rutherford describes writing the lyrics as being extraordinarily easy. Um, which is, is very cool. And I think the, the funny part about the lore when you get into this is the fact that Henschel gave, didn't give a shit about this song. He was like, yeah, that's not really worth our time until the record company heard it and said, that's a yeah. single. <laughs> that's got to be on the record. And mm -hmm. um, apparently it was a conscious decision by the band to put it at the end because they wanted something, um, 
you know, a, a little less intense <laughs> to, to finish the album. You think? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just, it, you want to dismiss this song. You want to, you know, downplay it. You want to de-emphasize it because it's not, it's not proggy. It's it's it is extraordinarily straightforward. It's extraordinarily sweet. Um, whatever else the case may be, but you know we go back to yeah, and and I made this argument with the Silent Sun. Say what you want to about it. It was it was a song that helped give us Genesis and. You know, not that I think that they were in any sort of, of jeopardy of, of not making another album or at this point. But, you know, when you've got a band who are nine albums in and they have this sort of this cult tour following, um, you know, it's it's I, I don't I don't know if this is the harbinger of of what will come. And, and again, I can't wait to have that conversation because I'm not convinced that Genesis ever, you know, sold their soul to the devil or, or whatever else. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I appreciate that some people may have less than fond feelings about this song, but I, I, I find it to be perfectly wonderful and acceptable. And while it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, make me get excited in the way that, that uh, you know, burning rope or or undertow will. Um, you know, it's it is what it is. I'm glad you said a lot of that that there, Joe. I you know, you said you don't think they've ever really sold their souls completely, and I totally agree with that. And I think it's because if you listen to all of Genesis all the way through, that they never they never abandoned themselves. They they've the tracks on, and we, I've said it before, I'll, I'm, I will say it again many times, the tracks on We Can't Dance, some of those tracks I would stand up to any other track they've ever done. Yeah. Uh, from from, the, from a, a level of progressiveness, from a level of songwriting. And, um, and yet they have some of the most ah god awful pop songs on that album as well. Yep. Right? But, but if you just take what you know, if you just listen to Invisible Touch and go, "Oh, that's Genesis," they sold they sold out. Like you're missing the you're missing the bigger picture. And um, so I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about that a lot in the next in the next several episodes. Here, here's the the question I have for you guys around follow you follow me. You know, when I you know picked up this this album for the first time to listen to it many years ago, the only track that I knew was "Follow You Follow Me," and I knew it very well by that point already. Mm-hmm. So as I was trying to listen to this album and then all of a sudden and like figure it out and get into it and then all of a sudden follow you follow me comes on I'm like well well this doesn't fit this song doesn't <laughs> fit doesn't fit in anything else I'm listening and is it is it does it not fit just because I was so familiar with it and it seemed so different or does it really not fit with I, the rest I, of it I think it really doesn't fit it I mean it almost didn't fit with the other classic rock songs it was playing with on the radio. It, it's pretty unique unto itself. It's a, um, I, I find it to be like a pastiche or uh, the word sonic can be a noun. It's like a sonic. It, you can't separate the final 
product and, and, and just take the sheet music and do something with it. Like it is uh, a, a digital delay and a flanger on a clean guitar. It has to be that it has to be nearly identical to that. And it's, it's, it, 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 that's what pop music became. Like once we got that technology, there was no interpretation. Like, like, like we were creating very specific sounds as a culture. And, and that's, you know, I, that's the significance for me. So whether or not you like the lyrics or you think it fits on the album or whatever, it's so historically significant, I think yeah. for the band. And then for just what, pop music became in the 80s yeah i mean that's yeah you're you're right you're right and you know there is a certain release to it that i feel like when i get to this song you know it kind of builds you're right it's understated but then you get into this nice melody and then you get into this sing-along chorus and you're you feel yourself kind of moving and i have that moment like at the end of a Marillion concert when I've been, you know, taken up and taken down and slapped around a bit by those guys. <laughs> and then they come out to the encore and they play cover my eyes. And I find myself going apeshit, even though I'm like, why are they wasting our time playing this song? There's it's just a little a bit sort- cover my eyes. It's yeah, got, there's you know, a sort of release that happens there that you're, I'm just okay with. It's the sorbet of and then there were three. <laughs> there you go. The sorbet. Awesome. So it, it, it sounds to me like, and then there were three is a, is a pretty big palaver hit. Oh my God. This yeah. could be my, my peak. I might peak out on invisible touch and it's going to be embarrassing. And the, you know, the big scope of the catalog, but have you listened to it lately? It's great. <laughs> 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 oh my God. It is so good. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, it just has the moments. I, I agree with you, Ken. I I have listened to it recently, and I love it as well. Um, but we all know that next episode is where I get to lose my shit. Yeah. I'm going to be with, right there with you. I can't <laughs> wait. Yeah. yeah. And they should have put this the title track of Invisible Touch at the end of the album. I would like it much better that way. Yeah, that would have been. the first track. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe just get it out of the way. I did hear that song on the radio while I was deep in the mother load, if you will. Ah. And <laughs> and I just I just found myself giggling at how silly how silly it was. Ridiculous. Um, it is silly. Yeah. I mean, the, the video for it was silly, but, you know. But to to the point that we were just talking about, like, that's just one little piece. Right. Of the puzzle. And and I'm making fun of you. I think that song, when I go back to listen to that for this exercise, I have a feeling I'm going to find that sound, that that album sounding very dated. But, um, you know, it's only one piece of it. And that there's a lot of great stuff going on in that album that I'm that I'm looking forward to talking about. Absolutely. Cool. But uh, so, yeah, again, and then there were three. It's it's a big hit. So uh, I'm I'm very glad that you know, I decided to to unshackle myself from my my analytical perspective and just give in and and gush about this record. Um, and I'm glad that you guys feel similarly. So that's great. And um, yeah, so next episode we have Duke to look forward to, which I think is uh, is going to be very very interesting. And from there we will go on into the. Uh, 
the rest of the catalog where, you know, we may have some very spirited discussions. I don't know. It depends on, on whether or not Tom's able to join us because I would really, really love to get Tom's perspective on some of these things. Yeah. <laughs> but for right now, gentlemen, I will say thank you as always for your, uh, your palaver here tonight. I think this was, this was spectacular. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. We, as always, have enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome, solicit, and, and uh, look forward to your thoughts, your comments, your questions for us. You can reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're free to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, um, available for subscription and download on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So, until next time, thanks for listening. I love it. I love to hear anyone on this planet say progressive palaver. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>